And we are back. I'm continuing to excerpt from Daniel Ellsberg's Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. So it's April of 1971, and uh, the New York Times has a story, and they are researching it for publication. Ellsberg is in Washington and other places seeking both allies in the government and legal advice. To quote from Secrets, he said, It looked as though I would need a lawyer soon. I made an appointment in the last week of May. 1971, to see Jim Vorenberg, who was teaching at the Harvard Law School. Patricia, his wife, knew him slightly because he had been a Harvard Law classmate and friend of her brother-in-law's. We went over to his large house in Cambridge in the evening and started with small talk about her sister and brother-in-law. Patricia and I were in easy chairs facing him. I told him of my background and of my work on the McNamara study, which I described in some detail. I explained how the history related Nixon's policy as I understood it, why it was important for Congress and the public to know it, and what I had done so far and what was in progress. But I hadn't gotten very far in the last part when he suddenly held up his hand and said, I have to stop you right now. I'm afraid I can't take part in this discussion any further. Pardon me? You seem to be describing plans to commit a crime. I don't want to hear any more about it. As a lawyer, I can't be party to it said Ellsberg, the top of my head blew off. I got up out of my chair and said in a low, tense voice, getting faster as I went along, looking down at him, I've been talking to you about 7,000 pages of documentation of crimes, war crimes, crimes against the peace, mass murder, 20 years of crime under four presidents, and every one of those presidents had a Harvard professor at his side telling him how to do it and how to get away with it. Thank you. Good night. This book, by the way, is, is worth reading if for no other reason, although there are many reasons, but if for no other reason than his description of his, his efforts to speak to Henry Kissinger about all of this. Ellsberg goes on to describe how the New York Times begins publishing the Pentagon Papers. On Monday evening, June 14, 1971, we went to a dinner party at the home of Peter Edelman, and Marion Wright Edelman. It was jammed with people sitting on the floor and sofas with plates in their laps, and there were two topics of conversation, what the Pentagon Papers were revealing and who had given them to the New York Times. Patricia and I listened without contributing much. Jim Vornberg, previously mentioned Harvard attorney, was eating on the floor in one corner of the room. Our eyes didn't meet. Tuesday morning, the third installment appeared. Attorney General John Mitchell had sent a letter to the New York Times asking it to suspend publication and to hand over its copy of the study. The Times declined, and that afternoon, the Justice Department filed a demand, the first in our country's history, for an injunction in federal district court in New York. The judge granted a temporary restraining order while he considered the injunction. For the first time since the revolution, the presses of an American newspaper were stopped from printing a scheduled story by federal order. The First Amendment, saying Congress shall pass no law abridging the freedom of speech or the press, had always been held, above all, to forbid prior restraint, quote-unquote, of a newspaper or book publication by federal or state government, including courts and the executive branch. The Nixon Justice Department was making a pioneering experiment asking federal courts to violate or ignore the Constitution in an effort to abrogate the First Amendment. It was the boldest assertion during the Cold War that national security overrode the constitutional guarantees of the Bill of Rights. Said Ellsberg, I got a call from Dunn Gifford, a friend of Neil Sheehan's, whom I met a month earlier. He told me then that Neil had asked him 
as a former naval intelligence officer, if publishing cables of the sort in this study might lead to compromising U.S. codes. He said, correctly, no. In telling me this, he also remarked cryptically that I should realize Neil would follow his own priorities as a journalist, not mine. In his phone call Tuesday morning, Gifford followed up an earlier warning by urging me strongly to give the papers to the Washington Post now that the Times was enjoined from continuing publication. The idea hadn't occurred to me, and my first reaction was to say, I wouldn't do that. Already by Saturday night, when I saw the first installment in the Times, I'd gotten over my irritation at Neil and the Times for keeping me in the dark the previous three months about what they were up to. When I saw how they were handling it and the impact they were achieving, I was nothing but happy over their treatment of the story, and I already felt a warm sense of obligation toward Neil and the Times. It seemed almost certain that Neil or the Times, or both, would win a Pulitzer Prize, which would be well-deserved. For me to give the study now to the Post might undercut that or force them to share the prize. Or the Times might lose its incentive to keep on with publication at a planned length if parts were being published elsewhere. Neil and I had never discussed exclusive rights to the story for the Times, but I had taken it for granted that the editors would demand that if they met my conditions for giving it to them, and that was fine with me. I told Gifford I felt a loyalty to Neil by now, and I couldn't compromise it by giving their quote-unquote scoop to the post. Gifford pointed out that what was at stake here was much larger than how much credit the Times or Neil got. He believed it was essential to keep the momentum going, to maintain a continuity of public interest in the contents of the papers. Who knew how long it would be before the Times could resume publication? We couldn't even be sure that the injunction would be denied. That could be the end of the revelations unless other newspapers were prepared to pick up the torch in defiance of the Justice Department and the administration. His arguments were powerful. While Ellsberg is pondering what to do, people from Newsweek find him. To pick up his description, I met for breakfast off Harvard Square with Lloyd Norman, the news magazine's Pentagon correspondent whom I'd known for years, and Joel Blocker, the senior editor. They started off by informing me that their cover story for next week would be the release of the Pentagon Papers, and they planned to name me as its source. I said, I'm not going to comment on who the source may have been, but I'll comment all you want in the contents of the papers and what I think they mean. I had access to the whole study, and I've read it all. Said Blocker, we're convinced you're the source, but we can't go ahead unless you're willing to confirm it. I said I wasn't going to speculate about that, but I had no doubt, as someone who had worked on the study and who knew it well, but it was a good thing it was being published. The public needed and deserved to know everything that was in it. The senior editor said, look, it comes down to this. There won't be a cover story unless we have your confirmation on the source. Too bad you're missing a big story on the contents of these papers if that's true. He notes later, as it turned out, Newsweek did do a cover story, as I'd hoped, not on me, but on, quote, the secret history of Vietnam, unquote, June 28, 1971 issue. Said Ellsberg, as soon as Blocker and Norman left, I went to a payphone and made arrangements through a friend to call Ben Bagdikian at the Washington Post. Bagdikian had left the Rand Corporation to return to the Post as an editor the year before. I took it for granted he would be hunting for a way to get a piece of the papers. I guessed correctly that he would already suspect that I was the source and was probably trying to find me. But it wasn't a call I could take at home. Through an intermediary, Mr. Boston, quote-unquote, Ben got directions to call a number in Cambridge from a secure phone. 
This you will see, by the way, uh, outlined in the movie, The Post. After these efforts to find a secure phone go through, Ellsberg says, When I called back Dickie and a few minutes later, he recognized my voice. I asked him if the Post would print the papers if I could get them. He said yes. I asked if he, if he could commit the Post. He said he would have to call back. We arranged that if he got assurance, he should make a reservation at a Boston or Cambridge hotel, call a different number with an answering machine, and leave the message where we could meet. Said Ellsberg, Ben got a go-ahead from his managing editor, Ben Bradley, which is the aforementioned sole reference to Mr. Bradley in this volume. I must note with humor that Ellsberg describes that Bagdigian checked into his Boston motel under the name Medford, a subterfuge they'd agreed upon, and was dismayed when the clerk said he had a message for Mr. Bagdigian, who was expected about that time from Washington. That it did anything to do with him? Noted Ellsberg, apparently I'd forgotten the cover name. I didn't have my friend's instincts. Ben identified himself, saying that he wrote under the name Medford. At any rate, Ben Bagdigian apparently really did fly back to Washington with the Pentagon Papers sitting in a box next to him on a second seat on the aircraft. And my understanding is he really did reply when asked by the stewardess what they were. Secret government papers. Anyway, I'm going to stop at this point. It's a hell of a book. If you haven't read it, dear listener, please consider doing so. At this point, I'd like to go to a book I respect a great deal. David Halberstam's The Powers That Be. In his classic 1979 work, David Halberstam took a look at four institutions of American media, CBS, Time Life, the Los Angeles Times, and the Washington Post. We pick up his narrative on the Pentagon Papers on page 796. The publication of the Pentagon Papers by the New York Times caught the Washington Post flat-footed, even though the editors there knew the Times was up to something, that a team of journalists had been hidden away working on some secret project. For Ben Bradley, it was an intensely personal thing. Later, he would say of those days that every word in the Times was printed in his blood. It was not really a matter of substance. Neither he nor Abe Rosenthal, the editor at the Times, after all had been so fascinated by the question of how and why the United States had gone to war in Vietnam as to assign a team to find out. It was in his eyes that the Times had a big one, and he wanted to catch up. He just hated it. Hated being in second place every morning while everyone talked about the Times. At once, he made the decision to rewrite and credit the Times, while at the same time trying to secure a set of papers for the Post. Some people from the Institute for Policy Studies, a radical left think tank in Washington, called. They had a book that was based on the papers, and they offered to let the Post serialize their book. But it would be their writing, their tone, their definition. Bradley read the manuscript and was disturbed. Too much spin, he decided. Radio Parallax would pause at this point to editorialize. Too much spin of the pacifist nature, we would speculate. Based, though it may be, on accurate gathering of facts. At any rate, Halberstam continued, so the Post continued to rewrite the Times. But Ben Bagdigian, the national editor of the Post, had worked for a time at the Rand Corporation and had known Daniel Ellsberg there. And when the Times had printed the papers, he was sure almost from the start that Ellsberg was the source. 
There were in those days about 20 or 30 journalists and government officials in the Vietnam underground. Passionate, obsessed people who could not deal easily with those who had not been there and who spoke mostly to each other. Even among people like this, Ellsberg was special. He was so obsessed. He seemed to suck the oxygen out of the room. Nothing else mattered or existed. So when the papers appeared, Bagdikian began making phone calls in search of Ellsberg, finally locating him, and began discussions about how the Post would use the material. We would note, based on what we just read a moment ago, this is not quite the version we get from Daniel Ellsberg. At any rate, said Halberstam, Ellsberg was a tough negotiator. He wanted good, serious play. He was not going to perform this particular act just to keep Benjamin C. Bradley from being scooped by A. M. Rosenthal. When Bagdigian sensed that he finally had the connection, he went to Eugene Patterson, the managing editor, who was in charge since Bradley was out of town, and asked whether the Post would go with the papers if he got a set. Yes, said Patterson, but they agreed that Bagdigian ought to check with Bradley later in the day. When he did, Bradley told him that if he got the papers and the Post did not publish them, it would have to have a new executive editor. Said Halberstam, that was the commitment. He went on to say, there was no small amount of irony in the fact that if it was Bagdigian who was rescuing Bradley with what was to become until Watergate, the paper's foremost coup. The two men were completely different. Bagdikian was not interested in scoop, but in the actual social implications of stories. Bradley was only interested in issues when they were personalized and dramatized. Bagdikian was fascinated by the more subtle changes in the social structure that were by no means dramatic. If Bradley liked winners, Bagdikian was fascinated by the plight of losers. There was, after the Pentagon Papers, a moment of high tension between the two of them. Halberstam goes on to note that in June 1971, Ben Bagdigian was the one man who could save the Washington Post on the Pentagon Papers. He went to Cambridge and brought back the papers on June 17th. Halberstam then goes on to describe the battle that took place within the Post, where the lawyers get involved and say, we should not do this. It is evidently accurately portrayed in the movie when they show a scene where the reporters are working on the papers and take a break from getting some sandwiches to discover that the lawyer is in the other room telling Bradley to spike the story, at which point a minor rebellion then erupts. The reporters made it quite clear to Bradley that if they spiked this story, they were going to walk. Halberstam notes that to his credit, Ben Bradley was saying, I want a piece of the action too, although that's not the most uh, high-minded way to approach it. But he did argue that what the court had done to the Times was all the more reason for the Washington Post to publish. For him and other editors, the Post had reached a critical moment. They had come so far forward, becoming a great national newspaper, it was as if they were now poised on the brink. But if they were defeated by their own lawyers, it would all come apart. That was uppermost in Ben Bradley's mind. He was on the threshold of making the Post big time. The resources and muscle of a great paper were there, but the tradition and instinct were not. He desperately wanted to publish. He'd made a commitment to Bagdikian that he would publish. And the alternative to not publishing would cost him his best people. Meanwhile, Bagdikian was being very, very eloquent and forceful. If this kind of fight for a free press was something new and alien to Bradley, it was as if Bagdikian, press critic and press scholar, had been waiting all his life for it. He was telling the lawyers that other newspapers did not have to feel bound by the government's decision that each paper had to follow its own destiny. The Post had some of the 
most serious and professional journalist in the country. They had covered this story for more than a decade. They were more than competent to judge what damaged and what did not damage national security. A little something that does not appear in the Post movie is described here by Halberstam that I think I should relate to you, dear listener. Said Halberstam, the lawyers went on talking, talking their arcane specialty. They owned the law and Bradley did not. He was suspicious of them. He didn't believe that the case against publishing was as airtight as they made it seem, or the Times, after all, would not have published. He was annoyed that rather than acting as colleagues explaining the risks, they seemed to be adversaries fighting him. He decided that he needed to talk to a lawyer of his own. He quietly slipped out of the room and tried to call his friend Edward Bennett Williams. Edward Bennett Williams was a legendary lawyer in Washington, D.C. was at this point in time, I believe, the owner of the Washington Redskins. He gets Edward Bennett Williams on the phone and explains his dilemma. To paraphrase slightly, (laughs) Williams replied, that's BS, Bradley, pure BS. Adding as an NFL owner, I've never seen you so far behind so late in the game, Bradley. It's 21 to nothing against you, and there are eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. Bradley was feeling better at this point. He said, what about the law? Said Williams, Bradley, I've been in this city for 30 years, and for 30 years I've watched responsible and respectable journalists tell the Congress and the executive branch to go screw themselves. What's Nixon going to do? Put every major editor and publisher in jail? Let me tell you about Nixon, Bradley. He doesn't have the guts to go after you. Bradley, he hates you. He probably thinks about going after you more than any man who's ever sat in that office. He'd love to go after you, but he doesn't have the guts. Bradley felt better. The essence of this was not law. It was politics. At any rate, as you may know from reading on your own or watching this movie, um, they do go ahead and publish. And so did many, many other newspapers in the United States. And while Jim DiEugenio may have a point when he claims that the entering of the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record made all of this moot, we have to say that uh, the Supreme Court decision that came down was critical to everything then and since. And for a description of that, we go to the author Michael G. Trachtman, who was, I think, one of the best interviews we've ever had on this program in discussing his book, The Supreme's Greatest Hits, the 34 Supreme Court cases that most directly affect your life. Numbered among them, number 31, New York Times Company versus United States. Subtitled, The Pentagon Papers Case, Balancing National Security Against the People's Right to Know. Asked Michael Trackman, what happens when a reporter obtains information about an important national issue of great interest to the American people, but the government believes the disclosure of the information would harm national security? Does national security trump a journalist or anyone else's First Amendment right of of free speech? If it does, how is it to be determined if the government's national security concerns are genuine, or are they really excuses to avoid political embarrassment? And um, isn't this a discussion ripped from today's headlines? In discussions about the NIA, about the NSA, the CIA, Silicon Valley corporations, and others looking into what people are talking about, and above all else, what whistleblowers think the public ought to have before it. Continuing from Michael Trackman, in 1967, Secretary of Defense Robert S. McNamara commissioned a classified study to disentangle how the United States became involved in the Vietnam War. The report took more than a year to complete and encompassed 47 volumes with extensive documentary evidence. Later dubbed the Pentagon Papers, It included evidence that the government lied to and misled the American people. 
and that various presidents had overstepped their lawful powers. Daniel Ellsberg was a Cambridge and Harvard-educated economist who served in the military, consulted with the government on key issues such as the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, having been identified as a rising intellectual resource, was asked to join the Defense Department in 1964 to work for McNamara. In this role, Ellsberg visited Vietnam and observed what he believed were substantial flaws in the development and implementation of United States policy. Ellsberg morphed from an enthusiastic hawk to a very cynical dove. From 1967 to 1969, Ellsberg, at McNamara's request, helped to compile the Pentagon Papers, and in the process, Ellsberg further confirmed what he saw as rampant government deception and misconduct. At the height of his disillusionment, Ellsberg copied substantial portions of the Pentagon Papers and provided them to the press. The New York Times began publishing excerpts from the Pentagon Papers, and the Nixon administration immediately filed a lawsuit claiming that national security would be compromised if publication continued. Government lawyers successfully obtained an injunction to stop further publication, the first time the government had sought an injunction to stop a newspaper from publishing the news. The New York Times appealed to the Supreme Court, but in the interim, the Washington Post attained a copy and began publication, resulting in another government lawsuit. The Boston Globe then began publication as well. The Supreme Court, recognizing the serious issues involved, expedited the usual procedures, immediately scheduling oral arguments, and just four days later, issued its ruling. Decades before the Supreme Court had ruled that the First Amendment does not permit courts to order a prior restraint of free speech, except in the most unusual circumstances. Courts can award damages if what is said or written constitutes libel or slander, and courts can send someone to jail if what is said or written constitutes a crime, but courts cannot, except in the most extraordinary cases, issue orders prohibiting the act of speaking or writing itself. Owing to the speed to which the case found its way to the court, the justices issued a joint, very brief opinion reiterating the law regarding prior restraint of speech, stating the Nixon administration had a heavy burden of showing justification for the restraint on the publication of the Pentagon Papers, and concluded it had not met that burden. The Pentagon Papers were published, and they fueled widespread and accelerating opposition to the Vietnam War, as well as increasing cynicism about government in general. In addition to the brief statement, several justices of the court used the case to publish their own lengthy and detailed opinions in which they expressed their views on freedom of the press. Some justices took the position, consistent with the rulings in some prior cases, that if the publication of certain information would clearly create a direct, immediate, and irreparable injury to the nation, a prior restraint could be issued. These justices concurred in lifting the injunction against the Pentagon Papers, however, because they felt the government had not come close to such a showing in the case before the court. Other justices, notably Hugo Black and William O. Douglas, took the position that the government may never keep information from the public. Justice Black wrote, In my view, it is unfortunate that some of my brethren are apparently willing to hold that the publication of news may sometimes be enjoined. Such a holding would make a shambles of the First Amendment. He went on to describe how the role the Founding Fathers envisioned for the press. Quote, The press was to serve the governed, not the governors. The government's power to censor the press was abolished so that the press would remain forever free to censure the government. 
In revealing the workings of government that led to the Vietnam War, the newspapers nobly did precisely that which the founders hoped and trusted they would do, end quote. Anyway, fine book, and if you didn't hear our interview with Michael Trackman, please check it out in our archives at radioparallax.com. Well, I can't think of any other time where a movie has inspired basically an entire show of Radio Parallax, but uh, hey, it's the first time for everything. Of course, in the 90 seconds or so we have left, we could make this a show about movie reviews, plural, and talk a bit about the new Star Wars flick. But actually, I'm not going to need 90 seconds. I think I'll just say that if you're a big fan of the Star Wars series of movies, go see it. And if you're not, well, then don't. As originally envisioned, Star Wars was a fascinating piece of sci-fi with engaging characters and wonderful special effects. It has morphed into something that relies entirely on special effects and even, even, I would say, constant explosions, things blowing up. Something is going into flames, I don't know, on the average maybe every 20 seconds in this movie. And although it pains me to say this, I have to admit, I, I didn't much care what the hell happened to the characters. And damn it, writers, you don't have to try and surprise us every 30 seconds, okay? At any rate, this program was produced by Edward McMillan, and you've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your faithful servant, Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week.